Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello there and welcome to Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. As always, I'm joined by the serial killer whisperer herself. Hello, Amanda Howard. Hello, Robert McKnight. Good to see you again for another exciting edition. We're a bit late with this episode, but uh, life has a way of getting in the way sometimes. It, it, it does sometimes because you were ready and I wasn't. Then we had time zone <laughs> issues and yes. and then I said, no, I'm, I'm going out today. Bye. <laughs> so. I know. I was very perplexed. Amanda's usually available whenever I need her, but not this time. I I really didn't know how to take that. But here we are, and our plan is to try and this season, we're going to get on track and deliver them the same time each week. Yes. That's the plan. After uh, today. (laughs) After today. Uh, But this week, our psychological profile is on an Australian case, the Frankston serial killer, poor Denya. Now, Amanda, you actually spent a few years talking to Denya. Yeah, um, we had a written correspondence for quite a while and we also had some telephone calls over the years as well. So um, he was one of those interesting cases that not a lot of people know about. But, um, yeah, he had a groupie that decided to come at me and so he decided to sever all ties when I questioned him about it. So this groupie was threatening you, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, it's it's usually what happens. A lot of these people out there, and, and most of the threats I get are from groupies that feel like they have an ownership to these people. Like I've had people from um, the Snowtown cases and Paul Denyer and Ivan Milat and all of this sort of stuff that they seem to think that they own these people and that for me to talk about them, um, I shouldn't do because I'm not allowed to kind of thing. And I do. Like I'll, I'll talk about all of the people I talk to. Mm. And then they get perplexed because they say, oh, you know, such and such serial killer said they don't speak to you. That's because if I said, hi, I'm Amanda Howard's serial killer whisperer, I'd like to talk to you, I'm not going to get anywhere. So, yes. I mean, I mean, with Ivan, Ivan Malat, I used about six or seven different aliases over the years. <laughs> I, I changed my PO box, I changed my name. You know, and, and that's what, what I do to keep ahead of them because sometimes people do work out who I am and Paul Detanya did. So that's why the threats come. And and this is the point. Um, you do have a family. You do have to look after yourself and you're dealing with serial killers. So you actually do need to um, use an alias when you're talking to them. Yeah, because, I mean, there's been times I've gone to the P.O. Box to, to pick up envelopes, which reminds me I have about 400 waiting for me. Hmm. Um, I, I often go at different times of the day. I send other people to go because sometimes there's people hanging around and I don't know if they're waiting for the person to go to that mailbox. So I won't ever go ah. to the I, I won't go to the PO box if there's people around because I don't know who's watching and you know especially if I'm doing it like five a.m. I you know 
who's, yeah. who's going to save me. So there's a lot of precautions I need to take for things like this. And so wow. when when I start getting groupies writing to me and using my proper name, well, they use the, this name, which some people know isn't my real name either. Um, it's about, <laughs> yeah, I, some days I don't know who I am. But um, when, when they start using this name at the PO box, I know that someone has worked it out because I, I do share parts of, of my life with these people. Mm. So they sometimes work out, oh, well, she said that and so did the author. So they sort of so, sometimes do link it. And do you think Denya sent this groupie or did they just come at you on their own volition? Um, six of one, half a dozen of the other. I really couldn't decide because they both sort of come at me at the same time. So I wasn't sure if he had sent her or if she had told him about me and then they'd both come at me. I'm not quite sure, right. but um, she actually rung me. So that was oh. quite freaky as well because he obviously had my mobile phone number because he had called me. So it was quite mm. scary when I had this stranger ringing me and saying all these horrible things to me. Jeez. But we'll get to that, I'm sure. <laughs> what a life you lead, Amanda. But uh, what we do appreciate is you bringing your insight to us each and every week. We will get to poor Daniel later, but first let's get to the news. And police in California are hunting for a gang of serial killers that some are saying is reminiscent of the Zodiac Killer. CBS News 2 has more. The case of a two-year-old girl murdered in this car in San Bernardino is still unsolved. Police say back in September, her father, Detrell Page, was shot in the back of the head, which caused him to crash, killing his daughter. They were uh, 40 miles an hour on Cajon when another car approached them and started shooting as they were driving. That's what caused the driver to crash, and then that crash ultimately killed the uh, infant child. The toddler's death is one of five homicides in the west side of the city that detectives now say are all connected. The suspect or suspects are on the loose. Also on the list is last summer's murder of Nancy Magana, a popular middle school teacher shot to death in front of her five-year-old son. Police are saying her case remains open too and they need the public to help catch the killer or killers. They're very close to each other, a couple miles apart. It's the west side of our city, um, high gang area. And there's some other information that I, I don't want to share today uh, that points to that. Um, so we're just asking for somebody to call us, email, or something to probably break the case wide open. And within the last few weeks, there have been three more murders, men shot in the same area west of the 215 freeway. It's often been said that 90% of your crime is committed by 10% of your population. And I think that kind of fits what's going on here. Amanda, that's an interesting stat, he just said. The officer said 90% of crime is committed by 10% of the population. Does that sound right to you? No, it's not even close. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds really good. Um, because we did have this stat, I actually went and did a bit of research on it, and it's actually 50% of crime is done by 2.5% of the population. So, so there's lots of... Um, cases that happen that are sort of one-offs and things like that but then there is a larger group like this where um one person is responsible for eight deaths so it's right yeah so so um, okay so let me break this down because yeah. i'm not great at math but 50 percent of crimes is yeah. done by 2.5 percent of the population the other 50 percent of crime are, are done by 
the other 98.5%. Basically, that they're just sort of one-offs that happen and, you know, they're crimes of passion or it's a kid right. stealing, you know, something from a supermarket. It's things like that. But, yeah, um, 90% of crimes are not caused, are not done by 10% of, of the population. I mean, there's not even 10% of the population with criminal history. So it's, it's, it's actually closer to 2% that it is okay. 10%. So... That report didn't draw a parallel to the Zodiac Killer, but some publications like the Sun newspaper in the UK are saying the actual attacks are similar to the way the Zodiac targeted people. Yeah, they're basically saying that people are being shot in cars. Well, if this was being done elsewhere, they would have said it was like um, David Berkowitz, Summer Sam, or they could have said it was like the DC sniper, Ev, was closer to Washington. Really, it's a very, very broad stroke that they've done here, and it's basically that people have been shot in cars. But as that police officer did say, um, there's a lot, lot of gang-related crimes happening in that area, and they believe that that's what this is. Oh, I, I, it, it would... Not be fantastic, but it would be interesting if this was a Zodiac-type case, and we have had a Zodiac since the Zodiac, um, mm. but this is no. It's, it's likely um, gang shootings happening. Well, well that's what they're shot. saying. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I just want to say I love your no-bullshit approach. I always have, <laughs> and I've loved that about you, But which is why I laugh at some of your answers. Uh, it's just like, nah. Um, <laughs> but... Let me ask you this. If it is a gang killing all these people, which it sounds like it is, are they still considered serial killers? No. So because uh, when we think of serial killers, we think of um, the stalking of victims. Yes, I know the gangs would probably stalk each other's victims, you know, from rival gangs, but it's more about... Um, the motivation behind it. So mm-hmm. gangs sort of kill for re- retaliation to, you know, snitches get stitches, all of this sort of stuff that <laughs> happens, whereas the serial killer is doing it usually for, for the pleasure, for the sexual release, the power, the control and all of that. So um, right. if, you, if you're just looking at headcounts, yes, but no. Okay. Well, a former detective involved in the investigation of three-year-old William Tyrrell, who went missing in 2014, is now being investigated himself over four charges of illegally recording elderly neighbour Paul Savage. Little William, who infamously wore a Spider-Man costume, has never been found. Now, hours of tapes have been released, including recordings prosecutors say were illegal. Seven News has more. He led the hunt for William Tyrrell, but this is the moment the former lead detective became... The hunted. You surreptitiously recorded a private conversation with Paul Savage. My concerns really the vexatious nature of the way that uh, I'm being pursued by the New South Wales Police. Paul Savage was a person of interest in the investigation but has never been charged. This, one of the recorded phone calls that's put Gary Jubilant on trial. Oh, good day, Gary. This is Paul Savage, mate. Savage ringing Jubilant with a changed account of when he saw a Spider-Man suit the police had planted in bushland. When I walked up there, I seen the the, the white top. I think it was white top with the stripes. White top. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The top from um, oh, one of the Spider-Man outfits. He told a different story in his earlier police interview. And I'm saying to you that. I know you saw it the day before. No, you don't, because I didn't. But police had recorded him on hidden cameras. When I interviewed you at the police station, and I, I was you know, fairly strong in what I was saying about uh, we know you saw it, and, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Can you explain why you didn't think about what you've just told me now? As I said, I just put it out of my mind. For police, the memory of a white Spider-Man suit was a red flag. He was describing a suit that William was abducted in, not the suit that uh, we placed on the track. A magistrate will decide if Mr Jubilant broke the law, pursuing a suspect. I feel like it is a witch hunt. A decision to be handed down in April. Serena Andaloro, 7 News. This fascinates me, Amanda. We've got a cop gathering evidence, but now he's facing prosecution over how he got that evidence. Well, yeah, because it's like this. Well, if this goes to trial, if this is the guy or anything like that, the first thing is going they're going to say is, how did you get this? And it can't be used. So, you know, had he got this guy to do it properly and brought him down to the police station and interviewed him properly, they would have been able to use this at some time in the future if this guy is the suspect. Now, by doing things like this, he's going rogue. And, yes, it, well, we might say, but, you know, the, the outcome is worth it. But it's not because this guy is, yes, he's a person of interest, but he's not current, currently the suspect. And Jubilant is an officer that has been linked to a lot of cold cases in this state, which concerns me that maybe this is the sort of stuff that's happened with other cases and that's why they couldn't solve them because he's, he's, he's gone a bit rogue and it concerns me. Well, that's, that's certainly uh, an, a thought process that enters your head when he's facing this. Of course, he still is facing prosecution and hasn't been charged, no. so we can't assume that he's done the wrong thing. But the big question um, is... We, we know that New South Wales law is that you cannot secretly record someone. That's like... That's yeah, but he still has due process, so we can't say he's guilty of anything. He has to go through the court proceedings like anyone else if he is indeed uh, charged to that extent, and he's entitled to a fair trial Absolutely. with a presumption of innocence. Um, but what is crazy, or just plain weird, is that the recordings police are saying uh, are illegal have now been released. I don't get that. I don't know why they have released them. Basically, they're saying that... There's there's two trains of thought here, so it's it's quite confusing. Why would they release them if this is the guy? Yes, but at the same time, if they want to hang Jubilant, this is the way to do it. Is mm. to show that he's being a rogue cop, and so so they are tainting the jury. They are tainting a trial before it even occurs by saying this is what this office is doing. So you know, and so if this was the guy, and if this this was the person that they were pursuing like they did with um, other cases, then they wouldn't have, have brought it out. So basically the police are saying that this guy definitely isn't the suspect, whereas Jubilin was chasing him hard because he believed he was. So, you know, it, it's it's a confusing case and it's, it's quite odd that they're doing that this now and not later once we have mm. a better outcome in this case. I really don't know how I feel about these developments or what I think. And I think that I will just have to follow this and see where it goes and yeah. keep an eye on it. And we'll, of course, bring it to you here on Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions. Meanwhile, DNA evidence is causing issues in the trial of alleged Claremont serial killer Bradley Edwards. The ABC reports Western Australia's state pathology lab, PathWest, has admitted making mistakes in recording tests done on crucial fingernail samples. Additionally, lawyers have told the court they needed more time to go through hundreds of extra pages of documents on crucial DNA evidence from PathWest that had not been disclosed. Alison Fan from 7 News has more. 
When Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon went missing from Claremont in 1996-1997, there were fears a taxi driver was involved. As part of a massive police investigation, thousands of cabbies came forward to give their DNA voluntarily. And today the trial heard that all of their names were included in 17,000 people whose DNA samples are on hundreds of Pathwest documents that should have been handed over to this trial. Crucial DNA documents that have now been recovered but raising other concerns. Justice Stephen Hall asking for reassurance today that there are not other documents lurking somewhere that could cause more delays. The trial should now get underway tomorrow, but the missing documents problem has not only caused headaches for both the prosecution and defence, but it's also messed up the witness list, with experts from the UK due to testify next week now having to be rescheduled. OK, Amanda, this seems like sloppy work at best, so let's go through it. First, what is the significance of the missing documents? Well, what they were were um, the DNA evidence against other people. So they had tested um, the DNA that they had against about 17,000 people in Western Australia, but they forgot to provide that. They only provided the info on their current suspect, and that was it. And it's like, no, no, because there were slight matches to other people that were suspects as well, so they didn't provide those. And the significance of that is that uh, the defendant could use that to reasonable put doubt, doubt. Yeah, reasonable abs- doubt. Yeah, absolutely, and that's and that's what could happen. So, you know, they didn't do that. And there's some other bits and pieces that have that have happened as well. You know, that that they now have to bring up because if they forgot to ha- hand over seventeen thousand pieces of paper regarding other possible suspects, what else is there? Mm. Now, the ABC is saying while Edwards has has admitted it was his DNA that was found on Miss Glennon's fingernail sample. Now, the ABC is saying while Edwards has admitted it was his DNA that was found on Miss Glennon's fingernail samples, he disputes how it came to be there. Yeah, because they're saying that, um, you know, the the paperwork said it was her right hand instead of her left hand or vice versa. And so it's possible that, you know, it wasn't her hands at all, that these DNA samples could have come from anywhere and that there could have been a contamination from, you know, that her fingernails came in at the same time as something else that might have had his DNA on it and that there's been a cross-contamination. So that's what they're trying to, to prove. This is the best way to do it because juries and... And, like, these days we we want to believe the DNA because it is such an individualised fingerprint that mm. we believe that if there's DNA and it's yours, you're basically done. So they have to prove that there's doubt about the competence of, of that evidence that's been provided by saying that there was something wrong with the system that that got it. Well... They seem to be doing a reasonable job <laughs> of proving yeah. that there was incompetence because yeah. uh, we're seeing many mistakes and this is such a high-profile case that uh, its its result and its verdict will have big consequences going forward. Now, meanwhile, here's an interesting one for you, Amanda. A new study has revealed that a majority of serial killers share the same star sign... Taurus. The Mirror in the UK reports David Jester, a British author, spent two years researching the zodiac signs of the most prolific serial killers, only to discover those born between April 20 and May 20 outnumbered any other sign. All right, what do you make of this one? We, we look for patterns in serial killers. Could a star sign be a 
Manhattan. Oh my god! Should we be it, worried about anyone no, who is no, a tourist? No, no, no. Um, I, I can, I can give you equal numbers for every star sign there is. It's a load of shit, and there's so many things that go around <laughs> on, on, on fat Facebook saying these are the star signs of serial killers, and there's a list of thirteen. You know, it's like there is three and a half thousand serial killers throughout history that we know of doing a small sample of 20. This guy I didn't did even find inc- that interesting. Well, he didn't even include Ted Bundy in, in, in his list. Right, because I did find that interesting that it was the most prolific serial killers and I was thinking, well, that's not all of them. So, no. yes, okay. Yeah, he missed Bundy. He missed some of the big ones. And it's like really like he, he found one serial killer that was – born in November and, you know, I know lots purely because that's when I I was born. He didn't have Richard Ramirez. That was born on February 29. I mean, there is some that stand out that I went, yeah, this is really hardcore work, you know. All right. Wrong. So your call, your BS detector is off the roof Uh, at the moment. I'm literally, I am going to provide a list of every serial killer and their date of birth and their star sign because I'm over (laughs) this. I am so over this conversation. All right. We'll leave it there don't forget there are plenty more bonus material and video chats to be had on our patreon account you can talk to amanda and i directly via video chat and we love those chats we've got another one coming up very soon just go to patreon.com slash mwm confessions and pick the tier that suits you in a moment our psychological profile on paul denyer if you're struggling to lose weight you've probably heard about weight loss medications like wigovi or zepbound And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Shocking celebrity secrets. Justin Bieber's word against mine. Backstage drama. All of a sudden, Dolly Parton walks into the room. And controversial opinions. I'm not saying she's been approached. I'm saying this is what I'm hearing is the crunching options. TV Black Box, the podcast where people who've worked in the TV industry spill their juiciest stories. Julie used to like to drink on set. TV Black Box, available in your favourite podcast feed. This week, our psychological profile is on poor Denya, the killer known as the Frankston Killer. Over a seven-week period in mid-1993, 21-year-old Paul Denya stalked the women of Frankston, a suburb of Melbourne here in Australia. Amanda, we mentioned your correspondence at the beginning of the podcast, and we'll come to that soon. First of all, give me a rundown of the case, please. Oh, Denya actually attacked and killed three young women during that time. Um, they were Elizabeth Stevens, Deborah Freem and Natalie Russell. And it was over a seven-week period, but what many people don't know was actually there was a longer stalking campaign that actually started earlier that year. So from February, he had actually broken into a woman's department and completely destroyed the place, um, as well as prank calling that the same girl several times. He also killed the woman's cat and he ransacked Mm. other homes around the area before he actually progressed to the first killing. Um, He actually tried to kill a fourth victim, Rosa Toth, um, but she was able to escape. However, that same day, Denya then went and killed another woman. Sounds like a charming man. Look, in a later confession to Victorian police, Denya discussed how it all began. I've been stalking women for a few years in Frankston. 
just mm. waiting for that opportunity. Mm. Waiting for the sign. Mm. And sadly, Amanda, that sign he spoke of, it did come to him. So how did Daniel kill his victims? Oh, well, most of them were attacked and subdued before being strangled and often struck repeatedly by Dedenia. Um The women all had uh, quite significant defensive wounds to their hands, such as bruising and cuts, because... Um, so defensive is them holding up their hands yes, trying to stop yes, being hit? Yeah, so this means that he's facing them and he's attacking them as he's trying to subdue them. So right. um, once they were subdued, and usually it, it was by being strangled, um, he would then actually pull up their clothes and stab them or slit their throats. Um, and it's only once that they were un- unconscious and bleeding that he would sort of drag them to a place where he could continue attacking them and stabbing them. So though though the victims were sort of quickly attacked, there was this prolonged sort of um, after-death ad- attack that that occurred. One of the victims, Elizabeth, her, her body was actually clothed from the waist down, but her upper clothes had, had, her upper clothes had been pushed up and um, he had actually carved a cross and a star on, on her chest as well. So thankfully these were after she had died, but it, it just proves that he stayed around with these victims for, for quite a long time. Uh, the second victim, Deborah, she actually had a 12-year-old baby at home when, when she was abducted and killed. She did actually just pop down to the local shop to buy milk and he had jumped into the back of her car. Um, it was when her car was found later with a ding in it that that sort of helped them work out what had happened to her because he'd actually got her back into the car and made her drive him to where she, uh, she she was later attacked and killed by him. I've got a couple of questions about this. Um, is there a significance with a serial killer when they stay with the victim longer uh, or are, and are there serial killers that will just kill and run? Yeah, absolutely. There, there, there is, is those that attack and go like... Um, People like David Berkowitz would attack them and then go and then come back once other people were around. But Denier was one of these that, that liked to stay around. Um, Ted Bundy did this as well and a few others would actually return to, to the scene. But Denier stayed there and continued his assault regardless that the victims were very much dead by this time. He wanted to ensure that what he'd done was what he wanted to do. He buried one of the girls' purse and so then they would have to go and look for it later and things like this. He he had no fear that he was going to get caught because he had carefully planned where he was going to attack these victims mm. and so he knew how many people would walk past if he'd be disturbed and so he chose these places quite well. He knew what he was going to do. They were very, very highly planned. With Denya, was there any sexual assault? No, he, he, th- th- there was no sort of rape per, per se, um, but he actually exposed all of their breasts. So um, the bottom half of their clothing was in, intact, but he made sure that all of the breasts were exposed and that, that that's where he sort of concentrated his attack. It was more about the breasts than anything else. So that has a sexual mm. element, um, but the fact that he didn't sort of defile them or, or expose them any other way is actually quite interesting as well. Yeah, the focus on the breast, you know, like uh, Freud would say it was mother issues, wouldn't it? It wasn't fed from the breast or something like that. Oh, yeah, Freud would say that, but it, it was more likely that um, Denier, which we will get into a bit further, um, had a couple of sexual identity issues himself, and he was also ah. very large and chunky at this time and actually had breasts himself. 
Interesting. Now, before he murdered his third victim, police created a profile. Here is Victorian police profiler Claude Minasini on forensic investigators discussing some of the features of the profile he created. I was asked to have a look at the two murders that had occurred to that point to see if I could provide some insight in relation to the particular individual that might be involved in committing these murders. Typically, serial killers start their killing between the ages of 18 to 24. These kinds of individuals have a very rich fantasy life. They get pleasure out of fantasising about selecting their victims, the kind of victims, and how they're going to kill them and what they're going to experience during the killing. So if you're fantasising almost every minute of your waking life, it's very difficult to hold down a meaningful job. There was enough information, enough evidence available to me to conclude the killer was a local. You don't go and commit a murder in an area that you're totally uncomfortable with because that would be your greatest exposure. So he would fit into the local community. He wouldn't attract attention. It was perfect for him. Now, so they knew he was a local. It does seem obvious, but why is it important? Because most serial killers prefer to kill within their comfort zones. It's so then they know the area well. They know how to escape. They know where things are that they might need. They know the places that are low risk to them. You know, you've got to understand if if, if you're going to stab, you know, a 20-year-old girl in bushland behind a shopping centre, you need to know how you can get away with it, covered with blood with no one seeing mm. you. So mm. if you don't know the area, you don't know that you're not going to walk around the corner and there's 17 school kids standing there. So they need to know their area well. So they know that this guy can get in there, do this and walk away and no one's going to even notice them because they fit in with the local people. Um, you know, they they are able to sort of hide what they're doing in plain sight but at the same time know the ins and outs of back alleys and things like that. So they know where these crime scenes are. They know that they can go back and visit them as well. So that's part of their their fantasy life. And, you know, it's not always the case, you know, because there is cases like Ted Bundy and he he went all over the country um, and he was able to do it for so long. But most killers Mm. prefer this comfort zone and, and, and they call it geographical profiling because they know that within this area this killer feels comfortable and safe. Now, it's interesting because it was a postie who broke the case. She had been, she had seen a suspicious car near the scene of the last murder, that of Natalie Russell. The sighting led police straight to Paul Denyer. Denyer was taken to the police station for questioning, and here is the opening of that interview. What is your age and date of birth? I'm 21 years old. I was born on the 14th of April 1972. Okay. Are you an Australian citizen? Yep. Are you currently employed? No, I'm unemployed at the present time. All we'd like to do, Paul, is if you could just run through, um, starting with yesterday morning. I got up in the morning about 20 to 8, 7.30, 20 to 8. Right. I I just want to stop it there before we move on. Tell me what we're learning here in the first 30 seconds. Well, he's actually extremely calm. He's sitting facing the camera that's in in the corner of the room. He doesn't even mm. care about the officer that that's sitting opposite him. He's looking directly in, into the camera as if it's his moment and the sun. He knows what's going on. He's even trying to hide a smirk that there's something going on that he is dying to tell them, but he knows he can't. So every question that he answers, he does it looking into the camera, not at the officer. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Yep. Um, All right, let's go back. I want to play his answer to the employment question, as this seems a little odd to me. 
Are you currently employed? No, I'm unemployed at the present time. That should have been a simple yes or no. Why does he answer that way? Well, he's not under arrest and he's been asked to come in to answer a few questions and he's trying to appear intelligent and well-spoken. So um, what I've, I've learned from talking to Daniel, he has this fear that he's dumb and that he would try and have these conversations to, to be intellectual. He's overcompensating. Yeah, and so this is what he he, he does. Yes, he is very well-spoken, but um, he's, he's not a smart guy. And so he wants to appear that he is better than that and that this is basically a waste of his time and he's just coming here to answer these questions and he's the most important person in the room at current time and that's all he's trying to do. And he's also trying to, build, um, he's also trying to fill that void of the silence. He needs to keep talking until they ask that next question. Right. Well, he then discusses why his car was near the crime scene. As I was coming down, say, past Coringle Drive, mm-hmm. I noticed temperature gauge started to go right up to high. So I just pulled over and in Sky it's Road, road yeah. and right across the road is, you know, your golf course and, yeah. and everything. So I pulled up there and I checked under the car, under the bonnet, and found out the hose could come loose. I'm not a car person at all, but I've got to say... That's a pretty convincing answer to me. Yeah, if if I saw the temperature go up, I'd try and race home quicker, but that's just me. Um, <laughs> now, 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 Paul is is the opposite of a car enthusiast. You know, it, it this seems a weird thing to do, and I was quite shocked by this. Um, but, yeah, it does sound like a pretty obvious and convincing answer, um, and it would be pretty easy to prove right or wrong. So, you know, he's he's just sort of giving out enough of the story for it to sound convincing but not to go into details to make it sound like he's overcompensating. And we've seen that before when people are giving too much information uh, because they're trying to put people off the scent by giving every detail and covering their tracks rather than having a normal conversation. He's playing it very cool, just enough information but not going too in-depth. It's really, really interesting. And, look, it's all been pretty easy so far. The questions haven't been too hard. But let's hear what happens when the questions start to get a little tougher. When we saw you down at your flat this afternoon, mm. I noticed a number of cuts on your fingers. Yeah. Can you just um, put your hands flat on the desk here, so that, um, just right up here. This injury here is a long uh, sort of a cut. Just explain how you got that injury and when you got that injury. I got it yesterday and I was working on the car. Well, how are you saying it occurred? Well, the fan spins this way, yeah. so if I'm standing in front of the car, yeah. like here, fan yeah. spins that way, the alternator sits there, yeah. and there's some wires running down underneath the bottom of the radiator, there's a wire at the top, mm. which was for a light that I just recently put on, and it must have been when I was putting my hand down there, I caught the fan. Why did you have it running uh, at that stage, when you were checking the well, radiator? Clumsy worker, one car. Sounds fair enough to me. No. <laughs> if your car's running hot, you you should turn it off. But anyway, even that I do know. But... Well, see, I, I once lost a car because I didn't turn it off when it got too hot. You were making a joke about it, but I actually did destroy a car. So, you know, uh, sounds right to me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, he, he, he was happy to sort of go through each cut and he was ready to do that and, you know... 
this is what sociopaths can do quite easily. They do have an answer for everything, you know, and lying is so easy and second nature to them. So, you know, oh, well, explain to me how you got that cut. I'm clumsy. I didn't turn off the fan. The fan was going this way. I went that way. There was wires here. There was this there, you know, all of this sort of stuff. Um, it's It's just what he does and it's almost in an attempt to please the officers with his answers. He wants them to think that this is plausible and that, yep, it was a guy, wrong place, wrong time, he can go because, you know, he's he's trying to be smart but he's not that smart. You know, he's talking about being clumsy. You know, he's, his car was parked there, it was seen, maybe it broke down. It probably breaks down six times a day. You know, it's probably a crappy mm. car. He's an unemployed guy who just doesn't care. So, you know, but at, at the same time, he his um, egocentricity makes him do this too because he wants their approval. He wants to get the gold star. He wants to be able to say, I gave you the right answers, not I gave you the answers that you want to hear. So he's always ready to fill in those gaps. You know, he's he's filling in the story. So are we now at a point where he is overcompensating? Almost. He's almost at that point because this is a tough part to to go through because now we're talking about injuries that he has, that if he says one wrong word here, they've got him. So so it's a careful manipulation that's happening. He isn't overcompensating because he knows he can't get too chatty, but he wants to. So there's... He's he's on that precipice between the two and he needs to work out what he's going to say and do. So he just keeps going but not too far. Right, okay. Well, the interrogating officer goes over Denya's movements again and just to note, the music you hear in this clip is how it appeared on the television program Forensic Investigators and there's a bit where no one is talking this is in real time. There's music under it, but the pause is real. Yesterday, your car was parked opposite the location where the body of Natalie Russell was found. Mm. On the night that Debbie Froome disappeared, you walked over to Kenilworth Railway Station, missed the train and walked back. And on the night Elizabeth Stevens disappeared, you walked in a very close proximity to Lloyd Park on your way to pick up this battery. Do you think that's fairly coincidental yeah, it is. in all the, all the circumstances? Yeah. Are you responsible for the deaths of any of these women? No. God, it's a shame there's music over it, but... That pause is so full on, isn't it? The officer on video is just staring at Denya, who doesn't move. He doesn't even flinch. It's one thing I notice a lot about serial killers is how still they sit. I mean, even now, whilst we're recording this, my hands are going crazy. I'm one of those people that, that talks with, with their hands and you're shuffling around and, and we both have drinks Legs and things like that. Legs are always shaking. Yeah. And... Oh, it drives me mad sometimes when you do that. But, but we don't sit still. But when we're watching these interviews, now we have to remember these people have adrenaline coursing through them. They would have their flight or fight happening inside them and mm. yet they sit calm. This is the psychopathy of it all. This is their ability to compartmentalise the shitstorm that's coming and try and get out of it by being here right now. And he knows he had to shut his mouth. 
there wasn't a question. He wasn't waiting to answer a question because he had answered it in, in that same instance. Did you kill these girls? No. Instantly he had mm, given that answer. Mm. But the officer just stared at him hoping that he could see that Denier wanted to fill that void. And so he thought, right, I'm just going to shut up and see how long. And I think it's about 20 seconds or something. It's quite long. And Denier does not move, does not flinch, does not do anything. He sits and stares. And, it's, and it is so full. There is so much being said without it being said because Denier could have then confessed. This is that moment that we have those sliding doors mm. where, you know, the officer says, do I ask the question or are they just going to, to confess? He waited, hoping that Denier would go, okay, yeah, you got me. And people like David Burney did do that. David Burney sat there. The cop said, come on, David, it's getting late. Where are they? He goes, okay, I'll take you to them. Yeah. You know, it does happen. But this officer thought, yep, I think he's about to do it and I'm just going to wait. And sometimes not saying anything is the best thing to say. And that's what mm. has happened here. But Denny didn't buy it and he sat there just as long as that officer did and he was just going tit for tat. Now, we've mentioned his final victim, Natalie Russell, earlier. He was asked about her. Here's what he said. Are you aware that the um, girl was found murdered in Frankston? Yeah. Today being Saturday. Yeah. When did you first become aware of that? Well, I saw some police cars and everything when I was driving up Sky Road this morning and SES workers. Sorry, you saw SES workers and all that? Mm. In Sky Road? Yeah. And they had some white tape across the oh, yeah. walkway. And I saw you. You saw You saw me? Yeah, I saw you and I saw uh, the other guy. And that was, what were you doing when you saw that? What, where were you going or what were you doing? Oh, we were going to the wreckers. Now, this is fascinating. He's back at the scene of the crime. He's even telling the police officer that he saw him. This is pretty significant, right? This is huge. Now, you know, we think, okay, yeah, he, he, he recognised the officer. But think about it. When you see a car accident or if you, you see something going on on the side of the road, are you looking at the personnel or are you trying to say what's going on? No, you're looking at everything but you, you'll see police walking around, but you wouldn't be able to identify no. them in a lineup in a hundred years. No, exactly. But Denier knows what's going on, so he's looking to see who he's about to face. He is about who is now the cat because he's the mouse. He is seeing who is going to be, you know, the big important detective that's going to come and interview him when he gets caught. He knows what's happened to this girl. He doesn't need to go and have a gossip look and, you know, take photos and stuff like that because he isn't the person who's interested in what's going on because he's the one mm. who did it. And the officer catches it because he goes, what, you saw me? You know, because, yeah, yeah you don't look at the police. You don't look at the ambos. You don't see any of them. You, you know they're there, but you're trying to find out what's going on. And it just rings of a killer going back to the scene of the crime. Yeah. As soon as he says that, he's, this is where he is possibly overcompensating and giving too much detail away. Look at you. So we've hit that point. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah you learn. <laughs> but now we get the questioning continues. And finally, after being asked for blood samples, we get to the moment where he confesses. Just tell us in your own words, Paul, what happened in relation to the death of Elizabeth Stevens at Lang Warren. I saw her get off the bus. <clears throat> I walked up behind her. 
I'm stuck my left hand around it. Ran the mouth like this and held a gun to my head right here. I started choking her with my hands. And uh, she passed out after a while. And then I pulled out the knife. And I dragged her to where she was found. Now I threw two branches on her body. Can you tell me why you attacked her on that night? Just, just had, just had the feeling. That's all. Where, what sort of feeling? Can you possibly describe it? Where, where you had this feeling? Just wanted, just wanted to kill. Geez, that's pretty chilling. I just wanted to kill. Wanting to destroy something is actually a, a powerful thing in, in the human psyche. Um, in Australia, we have this thing called tall poppy syndrome where um, lots of people like to bag out that those that are, you know, famous and everything. And, you know, it's actually yep. led to suicides and deaths and things like that. Um, Daniel was this fat, tall, no-hoper. He was on welfare. He drove an unregistered broken car. He had no goals. He wasn't going anywhere in life. The women that he attacked were young and pretty and had everything going for them. They were strong women. And he mm. wanted what they had and he was never going to get. Even even to this day, he, he wanted to destroy what they represented, which is everything that he wasn't. It's interesting because earlier on you mentioned there was some uh, issues about his own sexuality. There's been a lot of talk about Paul Denyer being transgender and that he attacked these women because he wanted to be a woman himself. It's, I guess it's kind of like Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. And even the wiki page about him calls him Paula. And you asked him about this directly. Yeah, I mean, I I understand if someone wants to be called by something else, there's certain killers that wanted me to call them certain things. Um, Haddon Clark likes to be called Mr Bunny Rabbit. You know, there's all these weird and wonderful things that happen. <laughs> That's a whole nother episode, believe me. Um, right. And so I asked him, does he prefer Paul or Paula? And he said Paul. You know, he goes, he thought he was transgender at one point and it was sort of part of a plan to be put into a female prison. He didn't want to be in, in the prison he was in. Um, mm. He now claims that he's more of a fluid gender So, and he's actually now okay. more asexual. Um, he, he has had sexual relationships in, in jail, but he prefers to not have any sexual re- relations now. He likes to still be flamboyant, but he um, gets in trouble for it, but he does make hats and things like that and jewellery and bits and pieces that he wears or gives away as gifts. I have tons of it. Um, just hmm. he, he just he isn't this Paula Denier person that the press have jumped all over and even the Wikipedia page, it should be Paul because, you know, asking from the source, he says, call me Paul. All right, Monsters Who Murder fans, it's up to you to go and change the wiki page and you can reference this episode and Amanda Howard, the serial killer whisperer. Let's go back to the police interview. He includes some of the details of the failed abduction of Rosa Toth. This again from Forensic Investigators. This is some weeks after Elizabeth Stevens. Yeah, I was just, like every day, I was just going up, boiling up. Mm-hmm. Until I got to that stage. Were you armed with the same weapon? Exactly the same. Exactly the same weapon. Was that the weapon you used when you first approached Elizabeth Stevens? 
Yeah, that's that's the one. And the same with Deborah Freem? Yep. Same as the woman at Seaford Railway Station? Yep. <laughs> Now, when he failed with Roska, he moved on to new mum, Deborah Freem. Okay, can you tell us what happened here? Well, the car was sitting over there. This is uh, Debbie Freem's car we're talking about. Yeah, Pulsar. Right. I was walking down this road here. Right. Uh, saw it jump out of the car. Yes. Ran into the milk bar here. So I jumped in the back seat of the car. Right. And the car was directly across the road, so I could see it from inside the car in there. What caused you to select her as a, at that time? Just that gay feeling. Right. So what happened then? And then she came out. While I was crouched down, I could hear her footsteps coming closer to the car. Mm -hmm. And she hopped in the car, but she didn't see me in the back. And she went to do a U-turn, pulled out the gun that I had, just as she was doing that turn. She kept going straight into this wall. What did she hit? Which caused a dent on the block. Right. And then you drive off down this kind of look Yeah, down that way. You know, we've seen this a few times where a killer describes what they've done like they're trying to fix a car or it's just standard, you know, like there's a lack of emotion in him describing these scenes. Yeah, absolutely. We, we've gone through this a ton of times. There's no emotion. There's no embellishments. There's nothing to show the actual joy that they're feeling from what they've just done. Um, they have relived it so many times that it's, it's part of their psyche. It's, it's part of their thrills. But when it comes to telling other people they know they're not going to understand and so they just tell them the facts. You know, mm. I, I got into a car, she tried to drive off, the car smashed here, I still got her, I still killed her and all of that. Um, their fantasy world is so different that they know that others aren't going to understand if they were to say, oh, my God, and the smell of her blood was like this and she was wearing this red top and I thought it was hot. And, you know, they don't do that. They just yeah. tell us those facts because... They know, you know, it's it's like if, if I went to a party and people say, what do you do? And I go, you know, I don't go, oh, my God, you should see the serial killers I spoke to this week. I'm not going to do that. I'll go. Yes, you do. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I, I, I have to gauge my audience, um, you know, but but we don't. We, we sort of give the facts and that's what they do with, with these cases. They don't go into those details because they own those and they're not going to give mm. those up. Now, it seems that Deborah Freeham had left her car unlocked. Do you reckon if she had locked it when she got out, it could have been a different ending? Sadly, it may have been a different ending for her, but someone else was go going to get killed. I mean, these days we walk away from our cars and go click and it's and it's locked. Back then you would have had to get out and put the thing down and then hold the door handle up while you close it so it locked the doors and no yeah. such thing as central locking and all of that. So she knew she was ducking across the road. She could see the car from where she was going into the milk bar to get milk. She didn't need to worry about someone was going to jump into the car. These, it's an urban legend that someone's going to do that, you know, People say that they check the back well, side of the car. Well, it always freaked me out enough that I have always locked my car, even when I didn't have central locking. Even back then, I used to go and lock every door because I was 
freaked out about people jumping in the back of the no, car. No, because it's an urban legend. This doesn't happen. So it's <laughs> well, it did. It, it happened does, to you. Absolutely, absolutely. But people don't believe it's going to happen. So oh. you know, you think, oh, I'm just running across the road. I'm not going to bother to lock the car. And unfortunately, he saw that opportunity. If her car was locked, she he would have gone to have the next person. Someone else was going to die that night, regardless. So if it wasn't her, and unfortunately she left a brand new baby at home. Um, if it wasn't her, it was going to be the next girl he came across. Right. He, well, look, he continues his confession to Deborah Frame's murder. I um, dragged her about a metre into the trees and where she was lying against the fence. And I broke off two branches off the nearest tree and threw them over the body. And I hopped back in the car again. And I adjusted the seat to match my height because she was a lot smaller than me. And headed back to Madden Street. Why to Madden Street? Wasn't too close, wasn't too far from home. Wasn't too close, wasn't too far from home. Is this a serial killer's comfort zone? Yeah, so it's it's not so, so close to home, like it's not parked outside his, his house, so it doesn't raise issues there of, of, of him being door knocked, but it's not too far away, so he can get home and no one's going to say anything about him walking down the street. He knows the laneways, he knows the side streets, he knows how to get from the the car that he's just dumped to his house without anyone thinking, oh, it's strange that Paul's out this time of night. Mm. Now... Interestingly, Dania actually returned to Debbie's car the next day and stole the groceries and her wallet. More now from forensic investigators. I wanted to see what her name was and everything out of her wallet, so... Really? I took it up to the golf course and buried it. So you'd be able to show us where that is? Exactly. But how would you be able to find the spot? All right, I'll find it. You brought us up the track to this point where you've just kindly uh, cut the fence open for us. Yep. This is the area in here you get where the, um, you've indicated the purse is. Yes. He's digging around and, you know, like, really, we could have just said, relax, Paul, it'll be here. If you say it's here, it'll be here, you know. But he was frantically digging because it was like we weren't going to believe him. I should have shovel. Hold it there. Just shake a bit of the mud off if you can, mate. So that's the location where you buried the purse? Yeah. And who does that purse belong to? Debbie Frame. And I'll put it in the bag. i got a few questions here. First of all, why did he want to know her name? Well, he wanted to follow the case. So he wanted to hear her, her name being repeated when they couldn't find her. You know, she's actually a part of him now. And it just sort of adds to that fantasy. She's real because she has a name. So it it it, it allows him to say, oh, n- not the girl that had the short blonde hair. He goes, it's Debbie Freem. I know her name. You know, sees her, her mm. happy snaps. You know, sees, sees where she banks. He knows that extra pieces about her that makes her a person now, now that he has destroyed her. I, I got chills. When he said he knew exactly where to find her discarded purse, it was like no doubt whatsoever he knew where that purse was. Yep, and that is um, what he has gone and checked out multiple times. He didn't need to see the purse to know where it was. He would have walked past there dozens of times and known, I know what's there. And that's Mm. what they love. That's why they know 
to go back to these places. This is why they don't just draw a map and the police go and look. They take the killers to these spots because they know exactly where to dig. And as he says, I wish I'd bought a shovel, which proves that when he did bury that, he had such adrenaline coursing that he buried it deeper than he thought he had. Mm, interesting. Well, that was also the spot chosen for the last murder, that of Natalie Russell. We've mentioned her a couple of times now. He takes the police through what happened. I uh, went up there earlier that day and cut the holes in the fences. What did you use to cut the holes in the fences? Pliers. I um, stood here and watched Natalie Russell walk around the corner. And I went through this hole and waited behind the trees there right. until I saw her walk past here and heading that way. Right. And when she got about 10 metres down the track here, I came out of the fence. As we're walking along here, mm. are you still maintaining that distance behind her? No, I was getting closer each time. I walked along the grass like this, wouldn't make a sound. So you wouldn't be heard? Yeah. I was armed with a red handled knife. Where'd that come from? From my place. Is it on your head? Yeah. Just a red handled knife? Oh, and a leather strap. You would have found it at the scene. Two pieces. What was that used for? Strangling. What was that from? Um, there was a strap off a pair of binoculars I have at home. I grabbed her here around the mouth, yeah. in the left hand, like this. Yeah. I dragged her through here. What did you want to kill her for? Just same reason as before. No, I've always wanted to kill. Since when? Since I was about 14. I found it interesting that he had a desire to kill from around 14 years old. Well, he was one of these kids that was bullied and harassed because he was so big and he was frumpy and he just didn't fit in. And so he had this rich fantasy life. There was also um, issues with him, him watching horror movies and all of this sort of stuff. He, he attached all of that to his fantasy life. And mm. when the officers say, well, why did you kill? And he goes, because I wanted to. That's the answer. He wanted to and so he did. In the end, Daniel was charged in the three murders and the abduction as well as numerous other charges. He was sentenced to life with no parole. However, on appeal, he was granted the opportunity to apply for parole after 30 years, which is in 2023. Now, Amanda, Daniel spoke to you about his impending parole hearing. Yeah, he believes he's actually getting out. So he um, claims that he's cured and he's remorseful for what's happened and he believes that, you know, in 2023 he's just going to slip into society and no-one's going to notice that he's free. Um, yeah. Do you believe that? Absolutely not. I mean, with, with the threats that his groupies make at me because I talk to him, you know, I believe that he would be ready to kill again if he was released. Wow. He um, has been charged with sexual assault of other inmates. He has, right. he has um, really, when it comes to the anniversaries of these deaths, he gets very introspective and goes through them. He talks about them almost incessantly as those each, each death comes up. He talks and talks and talks about it. He, it it's just his only focus when, when the right. anniversaries are around. So I believe that that fantasy and that um, need to keep going over, I think, would become a compulsion to kill again. Interesting. Well, Amanda, it's been another fascinating case. I feel like I say that all the time, but I have really um, enjoyed hearing your thoughts on this serial killer. So thank you very much for that once again. Thank you. 
We'll see you next week on another edition of Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.